0: Hello and welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, and this week we're off to Venice with food writer and columnist and Venetian local Sky McAlpine. But before we get lost in the canals, this month, Cooking the Books is sponsored by Whole Foods Market, which sources the finest wholesome and organic foods. Each week, we find out what Whole Foods Market and sustainable chef Alexandra Dudley has found as part of the Summer Mindful Moments Guide to showcase the best well-being products available in store, like its organic mushroom coffee mix by Four Sigmatic to add variety and balance to your coffee routine. Whole Foods Market is seeing a mushroom sales boom at the moment, with UK stores seeing a growth of 26% in this area, largely due to the rise of home cooking and interest in plant-based recipes pop along to one of the seven london stores to get your hands on the product or head over to the whole foods market instagram channel at whole foods uk where you can find out more about the mindful moments guide now back to italy as sky takes me through her four favorite food moments from her new book a table for friends she looks out from her rather echoey high-ceilinged home over venice in summer with not a tourist in sight.
1: Oh, well, it's beautiful right now. It's really quiet. Um, And for the first time ever, I think it's kind of, I mean, there are a few visitors, but very, very few tourists. Um, And I've never quite seen it like this in the summer because even when I moved here, when I was six years old, um, so 30 years ago, and tourism was nothing like what it had come to be in the months prior, you know, in the months and years prior to... Um, COVID or the outbreak of COVID. Um, It's still in the summer, it was always really busy. The months of July and August were kind of very crowded and lots of tourists, but at the moment, there's no one. So it's absolute bliss. I feel very lucky on that side to be able to enjoy the city, lovely and quiet. And
0: particularly, you know, from a very sort of visual point of view, you know, your books are very beautiful. Your pink pages in your last book, you know, represents the different changing light in Venice. Venice without tourists must mean that you can see it.
1: It's true, you really can. I mean, I was running some errands the other day and I did something I would never normally do in the summer, which is walk through St Mark's Square in the middle of the day. Um, Normally, just avoid it like the plague because it's so busy and so crowded and kind of you get... A form of almost like road rage where you're trying to get through and there are so many people and it's really difficult um but it was kind of lovely there were of course a few people there were a few people sitting out having coffee but it just felt really normal and really walkable and for the first time in a very long time I really appreciated how magnificent the big church is and the piazza and the bell tower and just kind of architecturally and physically how beautiful it is without the distraction of of other people yeah
0: Absolutely. It's Venice that your first book was really capturing. This one is more about friendship. It's about the Italian feel of community, this kind of very Mediterranean feeling of sitting around a table with friends.
1: Well, that that was definitely my inspiration. In many ways, I thought, for me, it felt like the first book was about what Italians eat and specifically Venetian, so a, a small community, a small region of Italy, because of course Italian food is so regional and varies so much in every corner of of, of the country. And I wanted to explore my home, as it were, and, and the food there. And this book is about how the Italians eat. I really wanted to capture and find a way of, to a certain distilling that sense that Italians have, where they're just so relaxed around food. Food is such a huge source of joy and they don't take it seriously it's not a hobby you're not kind of like a foodie or not a foodie everyone loves food and enjoys food whoever they are whatever their background and it's such a kind of convivial and universal pleasure and there isn't this sense of the grown-ups table and the children's table or children having supper it kind of five o'clock in the evening and then the grown-ups eating later. Once the children have gone to bed, there's much more of this idea of like a big long table with all the generations sitting around that table together from the nonna to the bisnoni, the great grandparents down to the tiny little toddlers and everyone enjoying that together. And for me, that is one of the greatest joys in life. So I really want to try and find a way to encourage other people to yeah. embrace that.
0: And we'll talk more, about that in your second food moment, where you talk about moving to, to Venice. But let's go to your first food moment because this is where you say you really learnt to cook. Do you want to read us a little bit?
1: It wasn't until I had a, first had a kitchen of my own in shared student digs, but I can say I really learnt to cook in my third year at college. I moved out of the old main campus and into a ramshackle student house. What my new accommodation lacked in grandeur, it made up for with access to a kitchen. Only a small one, more of a glorified closet really, but blessed with a rickety oven, a sink and two hob rings. No fridge though, so I would cram milk and other perishables into a mini fridge in my bedroom, or in the colder months store all sorts of things I probably shouldn't have outside along the edge of a windowsill. The kitchen had no table, certainly no space for one, so we ate meals cross-legged on the floor at the coffee table in my bedroom. When friends joined us for dinner, as they often did, I would borrow another coffee table from a room down the hall and join the two together. I began, as most of us with an interest in food do, by reading cookbooks, earmarking those recipes I felt brave enough to try, then giving them a go. Sometimes it worked, other times it didn't. I learnt a lot. I called my mother for help often. What goes well with a roast pork? How do you make those peas, the ones I love that you cook at home? How do you get crisp skin on a roast chicken without drying out the meat? How can you tell when it's cooked? I turned to her to fill those holes in my own patchy knowledge that were not covered in my books, the missing pieces of the puzzle that is planning a well-rounded menu within the strict limitations of a rudimentary kitchen and the stricter still demands of a student budget. I spent whole afternoons when I should have been studying, staring out of the window in the library, planning supper. And when I cooked it, because it seemed pointless to just cook for myself, I picked up friends along the way to join me. Supper became a party... A little by little, I found my way to being the kind of person who cooks.
0: It's a very familiar tale. It's my tale. It's the tale of most people I speak to when they go to university and they find themselves. One of the things that I really love about this book, and I think it comes from that passage that you've just read is that it's very uncomplicated. It's very easy. It's very mix and match it, You have lots of pretty things, but you don't have lots of expensive things around it. It feels like you kind of go around and you potter around the shops and you pick up wonderful things. Is that what you that do? That is exactly
1: what I do. I think it shouldn't, I mean, it shouldn't be hard. It's, you know, there's food itself is beautiful. People come to see you and to spend time with you. And I think that really, sh- it's important that that's the focus. Um, I think you know of course you're sharing food with friends of course you want to make it something that you can be proud to share with them you don't want it to just kind of be horrible but I think often we put too much pressure on ourselves um, and that ends up making us do it left off less often then we then it becomes something that's a chore to do rather than a joy so for me you know as you say I I you know I have a real philosophy I believe I don't own a single plate that I'm not happy to break I mean I love them all they're all like fines from charity shops and flea markets and in a way for me precious because they're one of a kind but there's but they're all there to be used and run through the dishwasher and You know, if they break, they break. That was a fabulous evening, and it and it was worth it. I kind of, I don't, I I don't think it should feel formal or forced. It should feel relaxed and inviting and welcoming, and you should have the things that you love and the people that you love around your table.
0: Yeah, it must be weird for you coming having this kind of dual existence between Venice and London, because it still is a bit like that in London, isn't it? And I wonder if it'll always be like that in Britain. We we still are very odd about eating, I find. it. I, only last weekend, people said that they couldn't cook for me because I worked for Delicious. <laughs> I mean, i mean i can't believe that i still hear those things are people still frightened of cooking for you well i
1: um i don't i find i invite friends over to me a lot more than um i get invited back so maybe that's why (laughs) um but also it's selfishly i i love having friends over so i'm i'm always harassing people to come come to me um because i love cooking and there's no joy greater than feeding friends um but I think yes there there is there we there is a lot of anxiety that for us surrounds food and I think we just need to slowly strip that away I think we feel pressure to be perfect um, and to show that we've made an effort rather than just really relishing things that are, already sim- that are already really beautiful and already completely delicious some of the best meals are the simplest meals you know I think everyone's favourite thing to eat is roast chicken I mean you cannot get better than a good roast chicken maybe with a salad and maybe some roast potatoes and that's so easy to make and it's literally 5 to 10 minutes of hands on time then you pop it in the oven and it's done um, yeah. so I think it's really important to reengage with that and focus on that
0: yeah. I mean you come from a a blogging background. That's how you started. You taught yourself to take photographs, beautiful photographs. You really study what you do. That's you know that your depth is is really admirable. And and it shows on the page. It shows on the on, on your Instagram pictures. That sense of design, that sense of beauty and prettiness.
1: I I wonder if that
0: puts the the anxious cook. Well, on I him.
1: hope that it doesn't. Um because Really, that's why part of why I wrote the book was to really break down step by step how to do it and to try and show people that it is actually so easy and so simple. And if I can do it, if you want to, you definitely can do um, without a doubt. And I think it is because often I will have friends over for supper and they'll say, oh, my goodness, this looks you know they're so kind and they say this looks amazing this looks like so much work and I'm like really honestly it's not you know I've put a chicken in the oven I've tossed a salad and I've put you know four bowls of fruit down the middle of the table and that you know took me the time it took to do an Ocado order and have the fruit come to the house and put it in a bowl on the table so for me over the years I've learned a lot of tricks Which you could kind of call shortcuts. I don't like the word shortcuts because it somehow implies that there's a better way of doing things and that this is a sort of cheats version. But it is a quick version, it's an easy way, it's the most effective way to get maximum gratification and maximum impact and that's really what the book is about is I kind of wanted to show all those tricks that I've learned through years of making mistakes or going the harder route or trying to cook pasta for 12 people and having it kind of fail miserably um I wanted to really share everything that I've learned so that other people can just go straight in But more than techniques, it's actually ideas.
0: Like last night I, I did your, um, new potatoes with, um, olive oil, samphire and lemon. I don't think I've ever put slices of lemon with piping hot potatoes, put the pan on it and then had that wonderful sense of the, the, Pulp, sort of slightly squishing with the potatoes. What's happening there?
1: How where'd you find that <laughs> it's one? So good. It's just the heat of the potatoes cooks the lemons very slightly, and they tenderize. And I love lemon. Like I loved cooked lemon in savoury dishes as well as in sweet dishes. And I love that recipe. I use it so often because you cook it on the hob. So for those days that you do have, like a roast chicken or two roast chickens in the oven and no space, it's great because you're doing your potatoes not in the oven um, and also you can make it you know I've made it the day before sometimes even two days before and you just keep it in the fridge and I think that's a huge thing that I do a lot of when I'm cooking for lots of people especially on weeknights. you know weekends it's more relaxed you maybe have the whole day to pot around in the kitchen and that's a real joy but on weeknights you know we all have busy lives working during the day and yes, I'm lucky that I work from home. So that gives me a little bit more flexibility with my schedule. But it's really nice to kind of know that, oh, I did the potatoes yesterday or early this morning. That's done this evening. All I need to do is my main course, you know, whether that's roast beef or or, um, I don't know, roast chicken or a frittata or something like that. Yeah,
0: I'm looking forward to the rest of the salsa verde I made last night, which, you know, I mean, simple, simple salsa verde, but you put stale bread in it, which transforms it, gives it a completely different texture. And we just had some roast salmon last night with the potatoes and, oh my gosh, it's transformed the the salmon. It was wonderful. Let's go on to your second food moment, which is when you arrive in Italy, in Venice as a six-year-old. Read us a little bit of that.
1: When I was six years old, my family moved from London, where I was born, to Venice, where I was to spend the rest of my childhood. Much about my new life in Italy was different from what I had known before. There were the obvious things, such as the weather and the language. I spoke no Italian when we first moved, but I soon learned. Then there were the smaller details of daily life. I loved how shopkeepers would press sweets into my hand whenever I went into their store. And I loved how waiters would made more of a fuss of me, aged six, than of my parents, a child's prerogative in Italy. How they would come by the table one by one to say hello, roughly pinch my cheek, and give me my own bowl of grated parmesan to spoon over my penne al pomodoro, as extravagantly as I liked. And the food. Of course I loved the food. I've always been greedy, but what I found so enchanting about Italy is that everyone else seemed to be greedy too. From the postman to the fur-clad woman next to me on the bus stop, every Italian relishes talking about what they had for lunch and what they are planning on eating for dinner, just as I do.
0: I love that because it paints a picture of Italy as a child's playground. And of course, you speak to any child in the world and all they want to eat is pasta and you're in the land of pasta. (laughs) You've now got your own children. How are they getting on with the food
1: I love it I mean Italy you're so right it is a playground for children it's like you know i love when we're here we have you know our eldest son who has all his friends amongst the restaurants you know all the waiters are his best friend and all the shops the shopkeepers are his other best friend and they all adore him and then we have our little baby aquila who's one now and when you go somewhere new with him in the pram it's literally like being with a celebrity i mean everyone comes out to like goo over the baby to check he's okay can we bring him something and it's just so lovely to see um and it's so nice in Italy when we do go to a restaurant when you go out to eat if you're with children there's never that feeling of people slightly dreading as you come into the restaurant everyone's so welcoming and it feels so natural um and children you know are, are, are part of the the culinary world just as much as, as grown-ups. It's for everyone. And I loved that. I loved it as a child, although perhaps I didn't wasn't aware of it so much as a child because I didn't know any different. But now that I see my own children, I really am so grateful for having had that as a child and for them to have that now that they are little. I think it's the key. I think it is the answer, actually. You look at any culture in
0: the world where food is absolutely part is central to it you'll see children running around at all times of the night you know the greeks the turks the middle eastern cultures the you know italians french spanish everyone
1: apart from the brits <laughs> <laughs> but it is i think you're right it is you know it's an education it's a culinary education in a way and of Initially, no one takes it seriously and no one talks about it that way, but it's something that you learn from the get-go and it becomes a huge part of your life. It becomes one of your great life pleasures and then you can't imagine life without it. One of my favorite Italian food... Anecdotes is I was in the campo, one of the little squares near our house where children often go and play in Venice because there aren't really playgrounds, so everyone just goes to the campo and runs around with balls and whatever. And I was chatting to one of the other mothers and she has a little boy who's the same age as Aeneas, roughly, called Jacopo, and they play together a lot. And it was when they'd both started at school with that you know, first year at school. And I was talking and I was saying, how's Jacopo doing? She's like, really well. You know, it's a really nice school. They're very sweet. It's run by the nuns, you know, and they're very understanding. Like, um, Jacopo will only eat pasta with um, my tomato sauce. So, you know, I sent him to school with a jar of tomato sauce and um, and the nuns will make a separate plate of pasta for him with that tomato sauce. And I thought, and she was saying, talking about this as if it were, Completely natural and normal. And I thought, how incredible that you have a five year old child who, firstly, is able to identify one kind of tomato sauce from another, but also, and will only eat his mother's, which is obviously the best, um, but also for a culture that kind of doesn't think of this as sort of being silly, but kind of really celebrates his mother home cooking the tomato sauce for him and his appreciation of it. And I kind of thought, how incredible that would never happen.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Your third food moment is actually a very childish pudding as well, isn't it? It
1: <laughs> tell, is. Tell us about this. In Italian, we call this budino, pronounced bu I love that name. It has an onomatopoeic quality that means you can almost hear the wiggle of the custard as you say it out loud. I grew up with budino and it was always a treat. Ornella, a family friend and wonderful cook, would make it in a large mixing bowl topped with crumbled biscuits so you just dug in by the spoonful. The version here is a grown-up interpretation and is how I like to serve it now at supper parties for friends.
0: Now that one, I have to say, is beyond me. I I, I have a thing about puddings and and your fourth food moment is actually... um, an introduction to sweets. Why do I find them so terrifying? The main course is somehow you just put them on the table and roast a chicken or you just all dig in. And then there's the pièce de resistance, the dessert. And it terrifies me, I have to say.
1: I think that, again, there's a huge aura. I mean, of course, dessert, maybe even more than cooking, we sort of perhaps associate with fine French patisserie, with shoe pastry with croquembouche with the great british bake-off where they make these incredible confections that are sort of museum worthy you don't want to eat they're so beautiful um so i think again it's about relaxing a little bit and stepping away from that i think it's just i kind of my philosophy is i like when puddings look Homemade. I like when the cake is slightly lopsided, when the icing isn't perfect, when it's a bit, the jelly's a bit wobbly and crumbling. If only because it really shows that you've made it, you haven't brought it, you've made it, and it's made with love. And I think that's a very, very special thing. So I, I think there is, it's about finding the beauty again in simplicity and in the higgledy picklediness or or in the crackedness of the meringue or the lopsidedness of the pavlova. So I think if you can kind of relax into that, that really helps. And then from my point of view, I mean, honestly, I have an incredibly sweet tooth. I'm really greedy and I love eating puddings. So friends coming over is just an excuse to make a cake. And have it. <laughs> Make chocolate pudding and have it. So I really embrace that side of things and focus on the eating, um, perhaps more than the presentation. I probably should focus more on the presentation, but I'm very, very keen on the eating.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, I'm not sure I
1: quite believe you, but I get get the
0: idea. And I think that you're absolutely bang on about the competitive nature. Nobody ever competes over a roast chicken on television, do they? It's all about this showstopper's
1: I think in a way that's such a shame i mean of course it's wonderful of course it's fabulous of course it's an amazing you know for people who are very clever with their hands and really crafty it's an amazing creative outlet but food is food food is for eating and for sharing and it's about the people that you're cooking for and the basic fact is is that a home-baked cake is always going to taste better than something that you can buy in the shops you know yes. it, it just is because you've made it you've made it with love you're eating it fresh from the oven you know, you've seen the ingredients that go into it, you can tweak it as you like, you know, you like it with more nuts in there, you put more nuts in there, you like it less sweet, you take a little bit of sugar out, you know, you don't like the icing that it normally comes with, you can change that. So you can really make something that you want to eat. And people really appreciate that. They do.
0: Take us to your fourth food moment where you have more of an overview about sweets.
1: Given my love of all things sweet, it is no surprise that I like to bake more than I like to cook. Baking involves a different kind of magic. It feels like you start with next to nothing, a bag of flour, a box of eggs, a little sugar. Yet somehow you end up with a cake. It's immensely satisfying. I'm not a gardener myself, but I imagine the act of baking to be a pleasure rather like planting seeds and watching them grow into a field of sugary peonies. Only the gratification is rather more instant. Baking is the closest I get to quiet meditation in the kitchen. You will therefore find in this chapter a number of recipes that call for a little more time. Cakes, sweets, tarts and more. But I urge you not to be put off. If I can make them, you definitely can. They are also the kind of recipes where all the effort is ahead of time. And then when it comes to your lunch or supper party, all you have to do is bring the dessert out and enjoy the gratifying ooing and ahhing that it evokes.
0: <laughs> yes, there's your showstopper moment, you see. That's the thing I don't do. I kind of, I, in fact, it's the thing that I always ask people to bring because there are people, as you say, uh, who want to show their culinary creativity. I'm a feeder. I'm not a shower. Is that, is that, does that make sense?
1: That makes complete sense. And I think that any feeder should focus on what they enjoy cooking most. But I do think the the funny thing about like cakes and sweets, and I think part of how I came to love them so much beyond having a very sweet tooth. So I preface all this with the fact that I'm driven by greed but is that it it sort of it looks so complicated and it seems also magical because you do start with nothing and then you end up with a cake but it is actually surprisingly easy not the hugely complicated things that require a huge amount of skill but a, a simple cake a chocolate cake or a coffee walnut cake or something like that really does take way less time to make than you think it's going to and is a lot easier to do than you think it's going to be. And I think I find that incredibly rewarding. Um, yeah. When I was at university, one of the first cookbooks that I bought was um, D- Nigella Lawson's How to Be a Domestic Goddess, which I bought yeah. without a hint of irony. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, oh, that sounds good. I'd love to be a domestic goddess. Teach me yeah.
0: how to be that person. Exactly.
1: What's really wonderful is i think i can't remember which introduction it's in maybe it's in her main introduction but she really talks about this fact that the best kept secret is that baking is so much easier to do than anyone thinks it's going to be and Mm -hmm. if you're looking for that feeling of doing something special for friends it's really really doable and you can do it and you'll surprise yourself and i think that really captured my imagination i've not not turned back ever since
0: yeah. And I think the ewing and aring is really the utter thrill of knowing something wonderful is going to be in your mouth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everyone loves something sweet. And the funny thing is I find even the people who say, oh, I don't really like puddings, they always finish. Maybe they're just being terribly polite, but they always finish what's on their plate and they often have seconds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they do. Sky. you're the kind of person that everybody who writes about food, really would love to be. Your story is very magical and the fact that it's set in Venice makes it even more so. You know, you were the blogger who taught yourself, whose PhD seemed to kind of end in a wonderful sort of story of a, a place that you had made your home. You excavate it to find the most amazing history of food, uh, you put it into a blog, it gets snapped up, you get a publishing deal, you become the fated food writer. You're everywhere. You're in vogue, you're in food and wine, you're in, you know, the Guardian, the Huff Post, Sunday Times, you've got a column in the Sunday Times. I mean, what would you say to all those millions of people who l- would love to be in your place? How do you do it?
1: I think, I mean, I've been incredibly lucky um, and I'm so grateful that I, I, I mean, every day I kind of wake up and can't believe that what I get to call work is the thing that I love so much. But what I would say is just start and put yourself out there. And the thing that I think is most often stands between us and chasing after our dreams is the fear or that little voice in your head that's saying it's so hard there are so many voices out there Um, it it, it won't happen to me that's for other people I know that for years I dreamed of writing a cookbook and uh, it was just I didn't believe that I could and I think from the moment that I let myself believe that it was possible was the beginning of that journey that's led me on a path that I love and that is so rewarding and I'm deeply grateful to be on. Um, So I think it's just having the confidence to believe in yourself and in your passion and just be brave enough to put it out there. I think you've also got to have the substance. You've got to have the story and that, and Venice
0: is your story, that your own interest in its history and your rigour in actually going deep enough to find something that is unusual, is is unique enough to add something to the field. I think that's very important, isn't it?
1: I think it's a lot about looking at the conversation and thinking how you can contribute to it in a meaningful way and not giving into the temptation, which I know I, you know, always feel the pressure to you see that other people are talking about really interesting things. And the temptation is to think that that's what people are interested in. Therefore, you you talk about it. I think I didn't realize that there was I mean, silly of me, but I didn't realize that other people shared my passion for Venice and old Venetian recipes and the intricacies of Venetian you know culinary tradition and history and when I started putting it out there because it interested me I was so surprised and happy to see that other people were interested too Um, and I think that is the incredible thing about in a way the media the way media works now that with social media and the internet and blogs and whether you like it or love it or hate it if you if you you can put things out and you can find other people who share your interest more easily than we could 20 years ago or even 10 10 years ago um so i think you're right it's about put out there what what you want to say don't second guess yourself i guess is what i'm trying to say don't think oh i really want to talk about this thing that i think is really interesting but i don't think anyone's going to be interested in it i see that they are interested in something else just follow your gut and your passion
0: Yeah, passion. I mean, you know, it's the most overused word in in the food industry, but it's absolutely that because that's what people love. They love to eat and they love to read people's passion.
1: I think you're right. It is the most overused word, but it's at the heart of the industry. That's what makes, I think, what we do really exciting and interesting. And that's what I definitely love in people's work is when you see passion. there.
0: Skyway Calpite, thank you so much and best of luck with the book.
1: Thanks for listening. Please rate
0: and review and subscribe and pop over to JillySmith.com if you'd like to sign up to the mailing list to keep up with all my news. Next week, I'm back with 2019 MasterChef champion Irini Georgoglu, who's sitting under her olive tree in Crete.